Hi, welcome to The Wire Podcast. My name is David Boogie. Today I'm speaking with Steve Jones. Steve is the Environmental Health and Safety Director for Energy Management in Great Britain and Ireland. Our conversation starts off with Steve and how he came into the role 18 months ago as EHS Director. We talk about what an EHS Director does on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. And then we move into more strategic topics that Steve has been leading and involved in with others especially the coaching program that's been rolled out in GBNI and what difference that makes at a site level in terms of health and safety and human performance. We then finally move more on towards Steve and his life and how he balances a job he's passionate about with his interests outside of Siemens and we learn a little bit about Steve as a barista at the weekend. So I hope you enjoy. First and foremost, it, it, it's uncharted waters. Especially in a leadership team, you see very much that we've really tried to increase different thinking. Mm-hmm. And that is sometimes really scary. This is very much more about co-creation and collaborating towards an outcome. Yeah. We employ more people in Siemens than Microsoft, Apple, Google and Facebook together. Leadership is one of the critical elements in all of this. Those of you who want a new challenge, are comfortable with doing something a little bit different, uh, uh, come and join us, get your name in the hat, and uh, let's make this change together. And we're going to take you through a little journey in this next 45 minutes of the why, the what, and the how. So, Steve, thanks very much for agreeing to meet me this afternoon and to join in the the war. you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Very great. Um, Steve, maybe as a place to start, could you say a little bit about what your role is in the organisation? Yes. Yeah, so I'm the EHS director for the Energy Management Division. So obviously, a collection of a number of different business units, and it's about really just giving a lot of direction uh, to the business units, a vision of where we see EHS uh, going, uh, and I, I quite often talk about it in two primary things as well. Why I'm here. First one is to make sure everyone goes home safe every single day. That's the absolute passion, it's the overriding thing it's, it's all about. And then the second one, uh, if, if things don't go quite as planned, is how do we then protect the company? Right. So there's two elements to the role really, but the primary one, the overriding one, is to make sure everyone goes home safe right. every day. And how long have you had the role you have now? Uh, good question. Uh, first. I can't remember, it was the 1st of June or the 1st of July, Right. Uh, just 18 months ago. So All right. So it's not that long really. Yeah. And what did you do before the, this role? So the one before this was the Director of Life Transmission Solutions. Right. So I was doing that for just short of two years. That sounds like a very critical business, operational type role. What was it that interested you or why did you step away from that kind of business thing into a more... I suppose across the organisation, support function, EHS. I th- it was a couple of conversations with Carl, to be honest, right. and it's something I've done in the past yeah. in terms of I've done a, a quality environment, health and safety role, and I've always been passionate about high performance and about people. And the one thing about the EHS, for me, it, it's constantly challenging about performance, right. and while we while we apply it to health and safety most of the times. It's generally about people performance, right? And it's just something that I find fascinating as a subject. I just happen to apply it to EHS, right. but it can be applied to anything. Uh, so there's a couple of conversations with Carl along that line. Uh, the performance of EM at the time was good, but we had a discussion: good isn't good enough. Uh, and 
it was just reignited something in me that I just quite fancied. And I always remember Carl saying as well, there's 20 different locations. So and I thought, you know what, out of 20 different locations, seven, eight different business units, up and down the country doing very, very different things from a light switch and warehousing activities mm. in, in Electrium to the last transmission I did, which was a big, massive, complex offshore platform stuff. I thought, that's going to be one hell of a challenge for me and a stretch for me in terms of uh, all the cultural aspects of that and being able to toggle on the breadth and the depth that you would need to do for some of them businesses. I thought, that's going to be a huge challenge. And so I thought, you know what, I've, I've never had a go at that. So I quite fancy that as a challenge in itself. Yeah. And with the changes that are coming, you're heading into GP, is that right? That's right, yeah. It's EHS. Yeah, so it's EHS in EPC, in right. GP. Okay. But the overall structure for uh, EHS and GP is something that is still being discussed globally. Right. How that's going to be. The current thinking is EPC is the lead business unit for EHS in GP. Ah, okay. So because there's, there's no GP level management team, yeah. they're having different business units lead on something. Right. Is that at a UK or GBNI level or that's, is that global? That's, not global. Oh, globally, that's, yeah. that's the global setup, how they're looking at it. Right, right. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. All right. So. You, you said to me that you, you think of your job in two parts, getting the people home safely and then if something does happen, how do we respond appropriately? What does that translate into in terms of day-to-day -day stuff? So what do you actually spend your time doing, Steve? Is it, are you driving up down the country half the week to visit all these sites or are you, you, know, are you, are you sitting here in Manchester a lot of the time? So what's, your, what's a week? Is there a typical week? There's, there's, no, there's no typical week for me. And... So the, the challenge is, and this is where the challenge is with the seven business units, which Carl did mention, about how, how do you toggle between seven different business units with massively different risk profiles. But also, if, if, I'm, if I'm spending most of my time thinking about today, I'm not doing my role. Yeah. So I do spend quite a bit of my role looking at what's going on elsewhere. And I quite often talk to a lot of the EHS people, we need to look more left and right. Because yeah. otherwise we only know what we know within Siemens. Right. And then in terms of the horizon, so sometimes we've got to lift our eyes up a little bit more and look a little bit further out. Yeah. So I spend quite a bit of time as well looking at what else is out there, uh, what's the latest theory, what's happening on people performance, what's happening on the approach to health and safety. So I probably spend, I'd say, 60% of my time trying to work on where we're going, what we're working on, is there a better way, how to engage people in a better way with that, and then the balance on keeping some oversight and governance and operational day-to-day -day. and then we're required to drop into the detail so I've dropped into the detail quite a few times on different activities uh, but that should that should be less and less if we've we've got a management system that is meeting all our requirements and the complexities that we've got yeah what do you think are the so in the last 18 months what are the things do you think that have changed within the EHS environment that you've been part of, so whether it's doing some detailed work or visionary stuff or bringing in ideas from outside, what have you kind of stood up for and said these are the things I really like to get behind? A, a few different things. Uh, one of the first things that I did for everybody in the department was I got them all a, a Siemens jacket right. and Siemens polo tops and I, I purposely had EHS professional put on them. Right. Because my, my view when I first uh, got involved in back in this role was we were spending too much time on day-to-day -day activities 
which really should be operational ownership activities. Right. It's not for the EHS to discharge EHS. We're here as a professional service team. Yeah. And that's why I've purposely put EHS professional, because mm. I want them to be thinking of high-risk activities, foreseeing things that are coming, looking left and right, what is out there, what better equipment is there, what different ways of doing things, how do I stop risk in the first place, how do I get involved in safety by design. It's not all about operational uh, things day to day. So I purposely put the professional thing on, so that you need to spend more time being a professional advice to the business, and operations need to take more ownership of things. So spent quite a bit of time on that, uh, a lot of time trying to build a community, Okay. So rather than having a collection of seven different business units, I try to look at it more from a risk profile and then having a bit of a flexible workforce. Right. So, and we've been able to achieve that. So I, I changed the structure of the department a little bit, which created a, a head, uh, and that person became Ken Short. And then Ken then started to look at the culture development program. And mm -hmm. Ken has spent the last 12 months deploying the culture development program but also doing research like I've been doing in terms of looking left and right. And he's, he's taken us through his, his own research and talking to different companies and doing his own reading and watching YouTubes and LinkedIn stuff. The level of conversation we're having now on health and safety is vastly different to where it was 12 months ago. Right. Because we're challenging ourselves on the latest thinking. There's things come out of Australia called Safety Differently. There's movement Safety 1, Safety 2. There's high resilience teams, there's organisational drift, there's human performance tools. We've been doing lots of stuff around that in the background and looking at the maturity of the businesses and when they're ready, we're looking to bring some of these different thinking in. Right. So you might have seen, I quite often put on SSN, uh, work has done, as work has envisaged. And that's right. a big thing we're trying to push for. Because there's no point being sat here in Manchester thinking this is how work is done when it's done very, very differently. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a massive risk in that in terms of, we think we've got all our systems to keep us safe, which look like this, but actually they're not deployed very well. And how they've been written in the past has been done remotely from the workforce. Yes. So how do we engage the workforce in being able to help us develop systems which are more appropriate and they're more likely to use and follow? So that, to me, so I really got, all that resonates with me, right? So I been in the past in an operational environment and seeing risk assessments and meta statements that bear no resemblance to what we are actually doing right at, at the coal face or at the turbine or whatever it is and always feeling a sense of frustration that you know it feels like if we really write down what we're doing we'll be told it's not enough the customer wants to see more they want to see more paper so almost a request for just more we just want to see more controls even if we know we turn a blind eye because we know they're not practical, but we want to have it written down. How do you kind of, so, so that's, it's, for me, it feels like not just a systems or a paper exercise in terms of, 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 of closing that gap, mm -hmm. but a real cultural one between EHS community, operations, customer. So how have you been able to do that? Because that has always felt like a big challenge to me. Oh, the, it, it's a massive challenge. Yeah. And... Well, I mean, we're not there yet. I, I need to be clear on that. It's something we're still we're still working on. We need to get a lot more worker engagement yeah. in in our activities. But the customer one's an interesting one because 
And I know we quite often talk about the customer first and, and all, and I, I, I totally agree with it, but sometimes we need to be a little bit more bold and a little bit more courageous to say to the customer, we need to stop. Actually, we're, we're, we're kind of, we're missing what the point of some of this is. So where you talk about paper, you know, a method statement is, is six pages, next thing it's seven pages, next thing it's eight pages, next thing before yeah. you know it's 16 pages. And if you go then and you, you get the sheet, someone's been set to work through a rounds and people look on the sign-on page. I had a conversation with someone this morning, actually one of the project directors, and we were talking about it. I said, the most important thing though isn't the sign-on page, it's checking that they understand. Yeah. And you can't, yeah. How can you understand 16 pages? Yeah. And then, do we ever get them to check that the understanding's there? Because the key thing is keeping people safe and going home every single day. So we need to get a better engagement with that. And some of our customers help, some don't help at all. Some just want more and more and more and more. And I, I won't say which particular customer it is, but a few times I've been with customers and they didn't like it. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. And, but you give the reason why. Uh, and the benefits of not being able to do it and actually that they're overstepping their role yeah. and they're overarching what they're trying to do and then they're trying to enforce things on us and then I, I quite often talk about there's an adjustment cost for us then because then we end up doing far more than what we ever envisaged far more than we need to do yeah. and actually we're taking ourselves further away from work as done yeah and i've actually seen sometimes when that becomes excessive i think the actual real risk is going up yeah, you know, we're, absolutely. We're doing stuff in a way that's not as safe as it could be, but that somehow satisfies a paperwork process somewhere. Yeah. Um, so it feels to me like it's a re it's a real it, there's a there's, there's elements in here which are about maturity, about collaboration, about trust, about relationships with customers, and relationships within our own organisation with all of this stuff. And so maybe that brings you. You mentioned about Ken Short and some of the work he's been doing. I know Ken and and you. I've been very supportive of this kind of coaching yeah. uh, that you've brought into the organisation. And I wonder, is coaching one of the mechanisms we can use to start to open up conversations that might allow us to step forward? Um, uh, and I, well, I'd be interested in your, did, did you, so, so I'm holding an assumption that you brought the coaching thing in, that it was you that sort of said, I think coaching would be a good thing for us to introduce into an operational environment. A way for people to have conversations to introduce challenge that isn't just defensive but it's actually about hey let's have a conversation about this and um, and the safe setters work that they've been doing so was it you that introduced to them if so why yeah yeah it, it was it was me uh, but it, there was a number of people that definitely had an inkling and a thought that coaching's got its got its place mm. in, in health and safety it's not a, it's not a new thing in health and safety but I don't think it's been applied enough. So having a conversation with someone on a site to say, put your light eye protection on, is just such a short term conversation. It doesn't change any behavior. It doesn't change any thinking in the person. Yeah. Having a coaching conversation around uh, what are the risks of not having your light eye protection on? What impact would that have on you? What are the worst case scenarios that could occur? and how would that change things for you? And then, then seeing someone then putting his light eye protection on halfway through a conversation, you're not even asking him to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because he's starting to internalize within himself, well actually if the worst case thing did happen, what impact would that be? Would, would I lose my eyesight? Could I see my kids? Can I play archery anymore or, or, or go horse riding, whatever it may be, if, if I can't see? 
So it becomes a different conversation. That can only happen through a coaching conversation. And I, and, and I know from the work you've been doing as well around the coaching and the, and the dialogue, it's an improved conversation. It's a generative conversation. It's an and conversation. It's not a confrontational thing. Yeah. And the likelihood of getting someone to stick to a new habit when they've come up with the answer themselves is far, far yeah. greater. Yeah. I also think, possibly, so my sense would be that just introducing the, the practice of having conversations about what's safe here, how are we getting on, raises people's awareness about the environment they're in, what they're doing, where the risks are, and gets people out of that kind of autopilot mode where they're doing things and just assuming that it's safe because it was safe yesterday and the day yeah. before. So that seems like knowing that some of the, I suppose, challenging environments the work we do can be in, that seems really important to have people's awareness around paying attention and staying alert around what's going on around them. Just want to pick up one thing on there actually, which is which is the thing I loved about the Setters program uh, that we brought in. Our, and you set us first in two thousand and seven. So they have a, one of the days is called personal choice safe behaviours, and we've had something like six seven hundred people go through that now across the year. It took me a little while, but I, I remember when the light bulb hit for myself. There's one main purpose to that day to me, and that is for someone to challenge their own beliefs. Mm. Because if you get someone to challenge their own beliefs, they're going to be more open then to change. Right. And then the coaching conversations have a far, far better chance. Because you mentioned there about, you know, people with routine activities have always done it this way, have always been safe, so they'll always be safe going yeah. forward. So that, that's a kind of a belief that they hold. But just to see people's faces in some of these personal choice safe behaviours days, where we do different activities, and I can't say which ones they are, because it will give it away <laughs> for, for some future people, but just seeing the faces on it, seeing people, just, just for fun, betting £10, betting £20, betting a car, betting a house, and then they're absolutely right in themselves, and then seeing them lose a house, and then they still, and they still challenge. I can't believe... I, I, I've just done that yeah. and then it, the faces and the, their eyes have just changed and you can see you've just opened them up all of a sudden yeah. and then they just become a sponge for the rest of the day. Yeah. So, so I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I would have had a concern, so having a bit of experience as a coach, I would have held an assumption of belief that you can't coach someone who doesn't want to be coached. I think the thing that setters do really well is they get a group of people into an environment and into a situation where they they introduce this in a way that most people can adopt it, can feel it. Like you said, people are adamant that whatever they think is true is true, and then they're proven wrong in a very not in a negative way, in a very positive, friendly but public way. And they can't. It, it almost like even if they're not open to it, they can't not be open to it. Have they had the yeah. first-hand experience? Yeah. I think that's what setters probably do really well, is they have that, they, they can engage, especially at operational site leadership level, they can engage people at that level in a powerful way, I suppose. I was at an, an EHS conference yesterday, an external yeah. one, uh, in uh, Newcastle, uh, actually the football stadium. So, and there was a guy presenting from, he was at uh, EHSQ and something else, global manager for Lloyds. Right. And he was talking about environmental and sustainability, and he was talking about nudge. Yeah, so this yeah. is a nudge, you know, you just keep yeah. the encouraging the thing. And it, it got me thinking, our nudge in the setters program is the currencies. Mm -hmm. 
because there's, there's four key currencies that people come away with from the day that the time versus risk, the alpha moment, the personal risk perception, uh, and the habitual routine. And what's really good about them, once people have gone through the belief section and then we start doing the things and the currencies, they can relate to every everyday life. Mm. And then when we're out in the field uh, or in the office now, because we've done some great work now on safety by design with these currencies, the currency can just be a nudge. Right. So what alpha moments in terms of daydreaming uh, risk could there be out there? What time versus risk uh, choices are we making? They're just little nudges all the time, but once you've been through the program and then you understand the impact those can have, it means something a little bit more. Right. And then we can keep relating it back to these currencies as a nudge. Otherwise, it just becomes a random conversation yeah. to a certain degree. But when you keep relating it back to four, four currencies, it, it makes it a lot, makes the conversation and the coaching a lot, a lot easier. Right. Steve, thinking back over the last eighteen months, is there anything you feel like you haven't figured out yet, or there's some questions that you haven't been able to answer, or stuff that hasn't worked out as you would have hoped? There's more I've not figured out than <laughs> I have figured out. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm just reignited into the human performance element and the thing that I've not cracked yet is how to, how to get the coaching deployed on a, on a day-to-day basis. For a lot of people it's a very very different way of having a, a conversation and for someone like myself who, who's done some coaching qualifications and spent 12 months doing it, it's not natural to me. And quite a few people would might say, well, you've been a natural coach, but it's not actually an easy conversation to have a coaching conversation because I always find I want to rescue, I want to jump in and help someone, I want to help them with the solution. And so for people who've done that all their lives out in the sharp, sharp end, where they have a, a lot of time pressures, uh, and then uh, do I have time to have a coaching conversation? Well, actually, you might have one coaching conversation which has a lifetime of an impact on someone, rather than having 20 conversations and putting the light eye protection. So it's saving, but it needs an investment. And it's putting people in a different position in terms of how they might naturally have a conversation. So that is, that is something that definitely not cracked yet. Mm. And as part of looking at left and right, I'm, I met a guy who works for American Golf Discount. Oh yeah. And they've done coaching from top to bottom on American Golf Discount. And to the point they've got their own currencies, and I can't remember the acronym for it, but they've got five currencies with, as soon as somebody walks into an American Golf Discount, they're applying coaching technique. And they've trained everyone from the salespeople all the way up to the MD. And they've made it very systematic. So the store manager has to do a coaching log every single week. Really? Which has to get sent to an operational guy regionally and they also get sent to central HR. Right. And then HR look for trends or look for or match up stores which are mm. struggling. And then they go on they go in like as a as a support team then to give a support to that mm. store that they're, they're struggling with the coaching techniques or they're struggling with the sales. So they help them with the the, the American go, American golf discount currencies mm. with how to improve sales. Yeah. It's how they greet people, it's how they find out what the requirement is, it's how they match their requirements, but they do it through a coaching dialogue. And I found that fascinating because they said it's made a massive success to the company. Yeah. And I keep thinking, right, how, how, do I, how do I replicate that? I've got a, a big belief in myself, the quickest way to excellence is copy excellence. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I, I, I keep referring. I've met the guy two, three times from Open Golf. This guy, we're struggling to get it in here. What's why? Why are we struggling? Do you think what's what's holding us back? I keep wrestling with it. I don't. I don't. I don't want to mandate things. Yeah. So I think that's very, very old school. I want people to see the benefit in themselves, and I, we just keep trying to do these nudges. Yeah. So Ken's developed some coaching logs. And we're trying to encourage supervisors and site managers to, to use these coaching logs. And a lot of it is about self-reflection. So how did you find the conversation? Did you see any differences? Was the outcome better? And we're starting to get them in from a few people, uh, but not as, not as many as we were hoping. Right. So this is something that we're still working on at the moment. How can we get a little bit better having, having more coaching conversations? And that, that's the recording now. It doesn't mean coaching conversations aren't happening. And it's a difficult one. Do you measure it? Don't you measure it? Mm. But I, I've, I've found from when I've been doing coaching, uh, doing the self-reflection on myself of how the coaching went, I found is massively powerful yeah. for improving myself as a person, myself in the coaching environment as well. So what led you, Steve, to invest in coaching, your own development, becoming a coach? 12 months, I think, of probably reading and yeah. academic papers and writing and so quite an investment so what what where was the spark that kind of got you into this uh, the absolute thing for me was i know i was bringing in a setters program i knew it was based on coaching i'd done nlp uh, with setters a number of years ago i'd seen the benefit of of coaching but i'd never actually invested enough in myself to actually get something a little bit more formal mm. and i thought within this role Let's go and get something a little bit more formal. Let's go and uh, practice with some proper practitioners around coaching and try and learn a bit more about the actual uh, coaching itself. Mm. So I'd done NLP, but I hadn't done like CBT, I hadn't done Gestalt theory and things like that, and that allowed me to get some experience of that. So it kind of broadens my, uh, uh, I suppose, skill and capability, and then it helps me have better conversations like with setters, yeah. with customers, and then when people talk about coaching, because I know a hell of a lot more about coaching now, it becomes a better conversation about coaching, and I can understand some of the pitfalls of it, mm. some of the strengths of it, and how it can be deployed better. Yeah. So we still, have, we still want to do a hell of a lot more with coaching, and I'm, I'm, I've got a review in the next couple of weeks how the how the setters programs going, uh, based on what do we know now from what we knew 12 months ago, what do we need to adjust, how do we need to change it going forward, what do we need to emphasise more on, and there's definitely we need to do a bit more on, on the coaching side. And, in, and that's how to, how to support the business more with coaching, from a, from a, from a safety perspective. Yeah. Because I, I need to be honest, it's not pure coaching as in one-to-one -one coaching, yeah. it's more speed safety coaching. Yeah. And is there... You, you mentioned near the start, I think, that although the frame for your role is EHS, you're actually engaging in people and performance, and that transcends just EHS. Is there also, so is there a place for coaching, in your opinion, outside of the EHS environment? So, you know, the, the golf shop, I mean, they're not doing EHS, but they're using coaching, yeah. right? So, so I think for me, there's a question of where does coaching belong as part of management training or as part of seeing, you know, what leadership characteristics do we want? Well, maybe coaching should be what we expect uh, in our leaders in the future. Coaching has to be a core skill. Yeah. 
of, of supervisors and managers. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt, it needs to be a core skill. We do a hell of a lot of technical training, and I know we do soft skills training, but we, we don't do nowhere near enough on soft skills and, and coaching skills. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the, the, the whole world of work is changing yeah. as well, in terms of how people want to engage. Uh, I just done a post this morning actually on, on SSN about the uh, top, top 11 companies in the world have been identified for a circular economy. Right. And the future people who are going to work for Siemens aren't joining necessarily for a career and for the, the, the benefits and the package. They're joining Siemens for its sense of purpose, mm. how it makes a difference in society, how it serves society. How it has, uh, how it approaches sustainability, how it approaches circular economy, it's it's got to be good for, for society, yeah. and that's where I think, well, that's where the world of, of work are going, especially for high, for talented people, they're looking how can I best deploy my skills and capabilities, that's that's for the kind of the greater good, and I think there's Siemens is definitely moving that way. It's one of the things I love about Siemens, how how it can make a real positive difference. To yeah. society, and I think it is going to be a growing thing uh, as we go forward. And coaching is a key part of that because when those people join, they don't want to be told what to do. Yeah, they want to have better conversations, better dialogues, yeah. and a growing conversations. And you can do that through a coaching yeah. kind of approach. And I think in the past there was a huge amount of value, and probably rightly so, on the experience we had. You know, the most experienced people in the team. Their role was to lead and to share their experience and share their wisdom. But I think in the future, we'll also need the creativity, the ideas, the, the inspiration and the hard work and all of those things from not just the, the senior people, but from everybody. And I think creating an environment where everybody can contribute more and um, where leaders create the space for others to perform as opposed to maybe create the framework to tell people how to perform. I think yeah. that's the part of the transition we're in. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think there's a misconception about leadership as well. Mm. I know it's breaking down from a hierarchical terms, but leadership is, from, is in everybody. Yeah. It's in different ways. It's not about standing up in front of everybody. It could be just as much being stood side by side with somebody. And I quite often give an example of, it's kind of, I don't know, if you've got kids and the kids are growing up and they're riding a bike and, and you're just taking the stabilizer on, they just look over you or look yeah. over the shoulder at you and you just give them a little, it's okay. Yeah. That's a form of leadership in itself. I'm here if you need me, yeah. but you're okay. Yeah. That's, that's leadership. You can lead from behind. You don't have to be at front to lead all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think leadership being understood as a way of acting as opposed to a role or a position yes. is probably key in all of this. So that shift that we can all take, at times we can all be leaders, we can all step into a leadership position by doing something that positively influences or positively disturbs the people around us. Mm. I think that's, uh, that's what leadership is really about. Well, I was at a Siemens conference not long after I joined, about six, seven years ago, and I, there was a guy from Centrica, and I forgot the guy's name, and someone asked him, what's leadership to him? And he said, it's when the conversation doesn't change when I walk into the room. All right. And I've, I've, that's really, really resonated and stuck with me. And I thought that's very, very true actually, because you don't, if the conversation changes, that's something about a fear in that who's walked in the room. And actually, if 
for him, he just wants the conversation to be the same. I'm just another person who's walked into the room. Yeah. And I want to be able to join in the conversation and have a better conversation yeah. by joining in with you. Not you change the conversation because I've walked in the room because I'm seeing a senior hierarchical yeah. in all the leadership terms. And I thought that's, that's a really important thing like that. Yeah. And that requires people in senior positions to be very open to what others might be saying, to be prepared to challenge their own beliefs. Because so, if they walk into a room and the conversation doesn't change, that means there's a level of trust that you know they won't be shut down or you know considered to be wrong for whatever discussion is going on. Mm. So I think that that says a lot about the nature of senior roles that they need to create environments of safety as opposed to just environments of compliance or environments mm. of performance. There has to be the willingness to be open to new ideas and yeah. to to almost invite an alternative perspective. Right. I mean. I'll give an example from a recent site visit that I did and we, we walked around the site and it, it wasn't great and then I got asked to summarise, uh, the eight of us got together after it, yeah. all the site managers and I got, I got asked, uh, Steve will you summarise, I said no, I, I, I don't want to summarise, I want everyone else should have, have the views yeah. and I thought they were looking, they were looking at me because I was, I was you know, yeah. health safety environment director here so what's your view, I thought no, no. So we went around the went around the room, and there was some, uh, you know, some acceptance. It's not as good. And then my only summary at the end was, I'd worked with a number of them for twelve years, and I just asked them, "Is that now your new standard?" Yeah. And they they were very embarrassed, and they just said, "No, it's not." Yeah. And then one or two people wanted to jump in with the answers, yeah. and I'd, I just asked them, said, oh, "What would be the four things you would now do?" Yeah. And instantly, one of them said, "I'd shut the job." He knew the answers in himself, but he hadn't been given the space. Yeah, yeah. And rather than me going, because I knew that was the right answer, mm. but I thought, no, I don't. It shouldn't be me saying, yeah. shut the site, because it's not our standard and it's not where we should be. They know that themselves. So yeah. how do how to create it so they get the confidence to actually be able to say it themselves, and they did. Yeah. And it was really powerful for them. And I just laughed. Like, you need to set your new standards again. Mm. Once you shut it to open it, what's your new standard? And you need to agree collectively between you. How do you keep it? Because mm. no point having Steve Jones standard, Dave Buggy standard, yeah. and A another person standard, because then you're not working collectively as a team. Yeah. And then people are accepting different things. Yeah. And that's where I, I, I love the high performance mm. teams thing. You need to agree to collectively as a team. Mm. It's like I use the football analogy, which is quite easy on, on some of the construction sites, because they generally are still male dominated. Like not not everyone's a striker, yeah. and not everyone's a goalkeeper, yeah. and if you're a left back in, in old terminology, wing backs what they call these days, you can still go to the, the left hand side and do a cross, yeah. but it's not where your permanent role is. Yeah. So you, it's how you support each other, but somebody has to be a captain, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with being a captain, but you're still all equal on the, on, on the pitch. Yeah. Just someone's taking a little bit more of a leadership role, and that generally is the site manager, yeah. but it doesn't have to be the site manager. The thing that strikes me about your story, Steve, about doing the site walk around and then asking the team, what do you think about the, how the site is, and then them vocalising their own perspective and then make, being able to make their own decision about what should happen, that also strikes me as the next time when you're not there, they might say, we, we wouldn't be waiting for Steve to tell us what to do. Steve would be asking us what we should do, mm. to either improve it or to take action and do whatever. So I think you're building in a kind of a, a culture there of 
you're not going to tell them what to do, but you're going to create the environment for them to make their own decisions. Yes, and absolutely. that lasts even after, even when you're not there. So this week, next week, the week after, their experience of you is you would ask them to make the decision. Yeah. So why can't they make that decision now even though you're not there? Which I think is where it becomes really powerful. Graham Setter from Setters talks about, when we talk about competence, and he said the biggest thing he's identified over his long career is confidence with competence. Right. Uh, again, that's another thing that's resonating. I've got lots of things <laughs> in, 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 in my book. Uh, but the, all the guys were competent on site, yeah. but they didn't quite have the confidence. So how, how do you build up to have the confidence and the conviction to actually n do what they know was right? Mm. Uh, that, that's the challenge for me. The competence right. isn't, isn't an issue in the team. I know the team. Yeah. Uh, there's some top class people. There. But what drives me is, where was, what happened with the confidence? Yeah. One of the things, um, so, so you were involved in Growth to One quite a lot over the last 18 months as well, right? So um, that was our, our energy management strategy. Mm. One of the things we heard again and again when we brought people together and to have new conversations, think about the future, was this repeated thing around we need permission. Yeah. We'd love to do something, but we need permission. And, and you're now talking about people having, they're confident, but they don't have the confidence. Or how do we build more confidence? For me, I think there's something in parallel to that where people know what they should do or know what they could do, but feel they can't do it because they're waiting for permission. Is there something as leaders we need to be paying more attention to or as senior managers we need to be paying more attention to beyond the, what you've already spoken about in terms of coaching and stuff to try and give people confidence or they're not waiting for permission all the time? There the is, and I think we need to put a lot more emphasis on trusting people's judgement. Right. And there's a thing to talk about in health and safety terms of a thing called hindsight bias. So when an accident has happened, you'll go and investigate it, and you'll go, uh, it's clear what happened here, they never followed health and safety procedure number 32 clause 4.4. And then you'll quote it to them. What what you can't what you can't do is put yourself in that person's shoes when the accident actually happened, and then understand right. There's 57 HSPs in, in health and safety. They've then got commercial things. They've then got quality things. They've got people things to to deal with constantly. They've got the environment that they're dealing with in the day. It might be driving rain. They might have had a crap morning. They might have had too much and the, the stomach's all over the place. Uh, so you can't apply your hindsight bias into that moment in time that happened, say, a week ago. Yeah. What you've got to try and do is, is trust people's judgment and keep constantly encouraging them to reflect in themselves why they're making those judgments. Because it, it's a moment in time and you, can't, you can never, ever replicate that moment in time. So how do we get people to trust more of what the judgment is, which isn't always going to follow exactly line for line some of these different procedures and processes because the world changes, or the time changes, and the pressures are very different at that moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. As a friend of mine, uh, he, he is a, he's a, he's a pilot, he used to be in the RAF, still teaches people, he's in his 70s, and he was telling me something about, uh, there was a, a flight that took off out of JFK or, or Newark, and it landed on the Hudson River, people might mm. remember it, and the pilot yeah. got out, and he stood on the wing, and everyone cheered, and he was, uh, held up by the mayor of New York, you know, saviour. Yeah. What a lot of people don't know, he was disciplined about six weeks later for not following process. Yeah. Yeah. But 
like the, the pilot guy was telling me, he says, yeah, they have, they have check sheets, so if, if an engine is failing, they'll say, check this, check that, check this. What they don't have is, if an engine's failing, and then I suddenly start losing cabin pressure, yeah. and then I suddenly start losing oil in something else, there is no check sheet that can take all them three in. You're then relying on the judgment and the experience of the pilot to make split-second decisions. Yeah. And his judgment on that day was found to be absolutely right. Yeah. And he, he saved everyone, he landed it safely. You're never ever gonna get that in a process. Yeah. You've gotta trust people's judgment based on their experience and the capability and the confidence that they've got. Mm. And then once you start applying integrity to it, so they're doing it for the right reasons as well, uh, and the right intentions, uh, it's, 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 the perfect, it's the perfect thing for me. So, so I've got a question now, Steve. What happens when somebody uses their judgment, and it's reasonable judgment at the time, but something then goes wrong, something unforeseen happens? Yeah. So like that Sully Sullivan or whatever he was, the pilot who landed on the Hudson. Yeah. I think in the simulator they could actually said they immediately turned back. He could have actually landed at the, I don't know, LaGuardia or Newark yeah. or something. But at that that time, there was a whole lot of information and he made a judgment okay we're going on the hudson or whatever and 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 ultimately vindicated because they said well actually it was in theory afterwards if you studied it for three hours you could come up with a, a different yeah. outcome but in, in the moment it was good judgment even though it wasn't the optimum outcome strictly speaking mm -hmm. so what happens when we ask people to use judgment yeah. and something goes wrong what how would we react as an organization so as an organisation, I mean, globally seems we've got a thing called a just culture. They've just not actually applied it. So we're, we're starting to apply the just culture a little bit more. And there's a, there's a thing from years and years ago, it's called the James, James Reason Culpability Model. And what it does, it takes you from what your level of training is, where you're trained, what's your experience, uh, uh, what was the situation happening at the time, uh, and then the outcome then is, is dependent on obviously all, the, all those decisions that you make, but culpability increases as you go further and further down. Okay. And then we have three outcomes under the just culture. Uh, one is where someone needs to be disciplined, uh, another one is where someone needs to be coached, and another one is where someone needs to be consoled. So taking the situation where he makes a judgment and it ends up in discipline, the only way it can end up in discipline is if someone made a willful uh, decision knowing it was going away safe from a rule that was there to keep right. them safe. So they willfully acted on it. If it is an error in, in judgment as in a momentarily error, you can solve them. Mm. If it's something of, I wasn't quite aware of the procedure and I hadn't been fully trained, I hadn't deployed it that often, you go into a coaching mm. element or a training element. So we've tried to develop it now that it isn't about, uh, it's not a no-blame culture, uh, it's a just culture. So people have to take some responsibility and ownership for themselves and the judgments that they make. Mm. So if they know full well that, there's, there's a classic example we've got actually. On one of our projects, uh, there was some uh, concrete formwork. Uh, it was about uh, three, three, four metres high and there was a, some scaffolding and there was uh, the usual uh, ladders to get in the scaffolding. So that's how you'd access it and get to the top. A person had found a ladder somewhere else on the site, uh, put it eight metres away from where the scaffolding was, lent it up against the 
uh, concrete uh, and climbed up it and then subsequently fell off, broke his shoulder. That was a willful act because he knew full well, because he'd worked on it for weeks, yeah. that there was a scaffold in there. He willfully went and found the ladder, lent it up and was taking shortcuts. Yeah. So that was a disciplinary process for that person. It wasn't one error of judgment because uh, he had to find the ladder knowing there was an access egress point. Literally, and I do mean literally eight metres away. Okay. So, if we, I'm, ke I'm keen, before we finish, to know a bit more about you, Steve, as a person. <laughs> so if you weren't the EHS Director for Energy Management, maybe even if you weren't from Siemens, what would you, what would you spend your time doing if you won the lot of tomorrow or, you know? Uh, I've, 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 I've got, Plenty of things. So uh, a few people know, but not a lot of people know. So I have a tea room. So on a, on a weekend where I live, I live in a really popular walking area, a place right. called R Rivington between Bolton and Chorley. And uh, me and my wife, when we bought the house where we are now, we always had an envisage of turning the garage into a tea room because it's okay. in a popular walking area. So every Sunday, I'm yeah. a barista. <laughs> so I'm making lattes and cappuccinos and pots of tea. My wife bakes cakes and everything. And I love it because I know so many people locally now. It's a popular walking area and horse riders and bikers. Yeah. I love having the crack. I love the social side of it. Yeah. I get so much fun out of it uh, doing that. I'm a volunteer board member of a thing called Rivington Heritage Trust. Okay. So again, where I live, uh, and this is why it's popular for walking, there were some gardens built around 1905 to 1920 for Lord Leverhulme of right. Leverhulme fame, designed by an architect called Thomas Mawson, who coined the phrase landscape architecture yeah. and then they fell into disrepair and ruin and we got a lottery grant of 3.6 million about three years ago to renovate them and bring them back to life. Right. So I'm a board member trustee of that uh, on a voluntary basis overseeing the project and I volunteer. Yeah. So on the 23rd we've got a lantern parade in the yeah. evening uh, celebrating part of the gardens being open so I'm volunteering yeah. helping out in that. We meet every other week as subgroups looking at sponsorship and community engagement. So I do that every other week as well. Right. So, and I'm an avid DIYer as well. So I've, I've to be honest, I've got loads of things. You've got a backlog of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite a few people ask me how they fit it all in and I, I do sometimes wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, if I was to retire tomorrow, I've got plenty to do, yeah. uh, but I really do enjoy work, I enjoy the HS as a subject, I enjoy looking at high performance and how to get the best out of uh, people which which kind of results in great businesses as well. Mm. Uh, so the balance for me at the moment is brilliant and that's what I genuinely love about Siemens. You can get that work-life balance. Yeah. It is it's very flexible in, in, its, in how it does, how it supports people, whether it's from working from home or for part-time. Uh, as long as the outcomes are being met and you're meeting the requirements at work, there's no reason why you can't be getting that great work-life balance. And to be honest, I think I'm in a bit of a sweet spot at the moment and I've, I've been in places where I've not been in a sweet spot and it's been far, far too much work, but I'm, I'm in a sweet spot at the moment and, I, and I'm, I'm passionate about keeping in that sweet spot. So just before we finish up, what do you think allows you to maintain that sweet spot that being in that you know feeling like you're loving what you're doing at work but you're loving what you do at home you feel like you've got a lot of, I, I, I said you've got control over where you spend your time and you, you know you feel like you've got good work-life balance 
I'm not sure everybody in this organisation feels like that. I'm wondering what is it that enables you to, to get there? Uh, often there's, there's, no, there's no one thing, but yeah. certainly a couple of things for me. One, I, I love it as a subject matter. Yeah. So th there's a blend for work for home for me. So me reading a book on high performance teams or searching or reading stuff on LinkedIn or YouTube videos, that isn't all done at work. A lot of that's done at home. Yeah. So it, it blends into some yeah. home stuff as well because it's just something I'm passionate about. Yeah. And then I can apply I can apply it at work. Uh, I try and have a focus. Mm. So I, a few... <laughs> A few of my teams say I'm impatient, and yeah, I can, I can probably reflect to that. I, I've got high expectations, and I really do want to achieve, but that, that's, that's to drive to know what I know we can get to a better place. And I, I, am, I am driven, yeah. uh, but I hope I'm driven with some focus. So I'll come and work. I'm not one for writing lists all the time, every single day, but certainly writing two or three things I want to achieve today and some outcomes I want to do. Uh, not just uh, motion and creating things like a rocking horse is doing a lot of motion but isn't moving anywhere so I, I'm adamant I want to be actually getting some outcomes and achieving some stuff so I try and give myself some focus to get some outcomes not just being busy being busy so and if I can keep getting some outcomes on different things uh, and when I think it's getting too much I, I love doing my spider diagrams so I'll get, I'll get my pen and piece of paper, I'll do a spider diagram and I'll, I'll think, right, okay, I'm, I'm spending far too much here, I'm, I'm neglecting this area. Right. Quite often described as a garden. To have a beautiful garden, you can't neglect any one piece of it. Right. So you've got to be weeding in one area while you might be doing some major works of tree planting in another or some landscape works elsewhere, but you can't neglect any of it. Yeah. So I, I try and balance a little bit of time around the different activities, but definitely have some focused outcomes I want to achieve. Alright. Steve, it's been a brilliant conversation. I think probably should be there. <laughs> really we could go on talking for an hour or more, I think, but uh, I really appreciate it, so thanks very much. I've really enjoyed that, and I can't believe that was an hour. Yeah, I could right. go on for hours, and maybe we will. <laughs> yeah.